This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's now time for Women on the Waves, a show focusing on issues affecting women, here on Christchurch's community access station Plains FM. Hazelden and today on Women's Lives, Women's Stories, I'm speaking to Lan Farm. Lan is a freshwater ecologist, the founder and trustee of Working Water Trust and currently an elected councillor for Environment Canterbury, also known as ECAN. Lan ran her campaign from by social media from the remote Rao Island, which is halfway between New Zealand and Tonga, and she was there working for the Department of Conservation. I heard Lan give a speech last year at the Suffrage 125 celebrations and I thought, who is this amazing woman? I must meet her. Kia ora, Lan. Kia ora, Rachel. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, I'm clear you're someone who's a love of nature. So what were your early influences that got you connected to nature and the environment? Yeah, I I think I grew up in Wellington Mm. and... In terms of being surrounded by a natural environment, I would have to say we were surrounded by gorse primarily when I was growing up. Yep. Um, but I think it was really like a love of critters in general, which started my interest in environmental issues. So when I was really little, it was just simply like dogs and cats and tigers. But as I got older and started learning about the wonders of New Zealand's native creatures, yeah. I was like, wow, you know, these are... Now, you say tigers. Yeah. So were you born in New Zealand? Oh, no, sorry. I was born in Wellington. It, my love of creatures started with yes. the, those kind of animals. Yes. yes. And then as I learned about New Zealand's native yes. critters, yes. you know, like the kiwi, the kakapo, um, and even our endangered native fish, that's what really started getting me involved in the environmental side of things. Mm. Um, But yeah, I think my mother definitely, and and she's since passed away, but she had a love of the environment herself and would take any opportunity to take us out into the hills or the rimatakas or, um, you know, my parents would take us camping, Mm. that kind of thing. But it wasn't really till I was much older that, I would say I really started getting into the environment. Mm. So when you were, because I know you've studied ecology, when were you making those decisions about what to study that you got drawn to that in that direction? Yeah, well, I I mean, I always talk about the fact that I feel I, I really didn't start using my brain till I was 24. I grew up really having this perception of the world, you know, as being this lovely amazing, safe place, which Mm. it is, and I still really believe that. But I had a real perception of our leaders and particularly older people that, you know, the world was governed by wise, thoughtful people who really, you know, looked at all the evidence and made the best possible decisions for the good of all people and the environment. Mm. And it wasn't really until I was older and I'd already finished my 
you know, undergraduate degree in science, um, that I came into contact with a lot of our leaders and started seeing the discussions they were having or the things they were saying. And I started learning about, you know, some really outdated laws and legislation that I started going far out. We, they don't have everything under control mm. and we're not, you know, providing for the basics that make up, you know, a well, healthy society and environment. And mm. so it was only through that that I sort of started switching on and, yeah, using mm. my brain and my voice to try contribute to these issues. Mm. And what that says to me is uh, there must have been really positive role models around you that you you did grow up feeling the world was a safe and secure. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking yeah. that. No, no. And um, on one level, isn't it great that you got to adulthood before you <laughs> had the rude awakening? <laughs> you know, because, you know, yeah. thinking, my, I mean, my background is psychology and sociology. I think, you know, many children have that rude awakening before they're five or, mm. you know, as they're children. So there must have been something going on in your environment. That, yeah. I, 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 I really feel I had an extremely, you know, privileged upbringing. I, I come from a big family. I'm, there's six kids in my family mm. and really amazing support and love from, um, you know, both sides of, you know, my dad's family and my mum's family. And, mm. yeah, it was just mm. your typical Kiwi mm. dream growing mm. up, basically, mm. which I'm really thankful for. And I'm and, and actually that, I think in terms of, you know, taking on a leadership role, that always brings up for me the privilege of that and the privilege of that upbringing translates to the responsibility to then actually make some use of that. Mm. And really, you know, that's why I feel like in terms of my working life and where I choose to put my energy is in trying to help not not even necessarily others, just all of us, mm. you know, all mm. of us together. Mm. And that that's both, you know, the well-being of people, but obviously the environment as well. Mm. What I hear is doing work that is a contribution. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, because certainly there are people who um, have a very individual focus, like the work is for them, for profit, for gain, for, yeah. And I hear you, given that background, have... Um, developed values around work as an adult being around contribution. Yeah, I think so. And and I mean, it even, I mean, I, I've talked a little bit about my mum and, and her background was like in teaching and social work and that kind of thing. But also my dad, he really, for the majority of my younger life, was literally working night and day to support his children and, and our family. So, you know, I, I really didn't have a huge connection with my father until really later in life, particularly when my mum passed away mm. because he was just so focused on providing for us. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, probably that's part of, yeah, we could see that he was absolutely just working himself to the bone yeah. for us. Yeah, a life of service. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to go on to what you say more about 
leadership, but just for a sec, I know you've said you have New Zealand and Vietnamese heritage. Mm. What has the impact been of having Vietnamese heritage as well? Yeah, I um, my father came to New Zealand basically during the war as a student and met my mum at Auckland Uni, so he came on a scholarship and met my mum at Auckland Uni there, and that was in 1972. And I really didn't engage or, um, yeah, I, I feel like I didn't really explore that side of my heritage, and, and even I've got you know so much to learn about that side of my heritage. But I think the impact growing up, we had um, a, a young woman who had survived a really horrific um, experience in you know, a lot of the boats that were trying to leave Vietnam and there was a lot of uh, pirates at the time who would literally either kill everyone or just throw them overboard. And this one 14-year-old young woman had, had been the only survivor of one of those boats. And she actually, she was a family friend of my dad's and so she came to live with us. How and, old were you at this point? Oh, I was probably maybe four or five. Mm. And then after her time with us, we also had two of my dad's sisters come and live with us for a number of years. And I guess I was just always aware, and, and I guess through my dad's approach to life as well, how privileged we were, mm. you know, really just to mm. be in such a safe, secure environment and have, you know, all these resources available to us and be in such a supportive place that, yeah, we, we as New Zealand, we're, we're privileged people, mm. a lot of us. And, and we, you know, there's no reason, you know, as a small country who has a relatively small population, why we can't be providing that safety net, that security, that privilege to everyone mm. and it's just you know it pains me to know and to see that that is not the opportunity that all New Zealanders are provided for particularly when they're young mm. and so yeah that's where we are. Mm. Absolutely. The message I guess I'm hearing for myself is what I can do is really investigate my privilege. I don't know if I can say much more than that, but yeah. but but that's that's where my thinking's at at the moment. Yeah. Um, no, I really... and it's a, like a mind shift of uh, what does that mean? Yeah. What does that give me access to? How can I share that and um, look at so social? equity and justice and mm. yeah so it's it's evolving space for me oh totally and and I yeah I, I often reflect on that myself and I think you know coming back to the impact of um you know my Vietnamese heritage I think particularly from my dad when he reflects on his childhood and upbringing where literally he would go to school and, you know, some of his classmates wouldn't be there because they were, had died mm. from bombs mm. or, you know, they'd come across landmines or, you know, or 
they are literally, you know, sheltering in bunkers with, you know, ammunition being mm. fired all over the place. Mm. And it's just part of life and life goes on. But you sort of, it's just in- incomprehensible as, you know, living in New Zealand to actually take on board the level of, um, yeah, privilege. It's the, mm. it's the word privilege that we mm. do have. Mm. Now I'm going to ask you about gender. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... Um, I did read you say um, uh, when you gave your speech at Suffrage uh, 125, um, you never felt gender was a barrier. And I think you've answered some of that is, is because of the upbringing. I think I've just been really lucky in that, you know, I mean, it's it's that the fact that so many women have been carving these paths time after time after time, that it just so happened that in my life story so far, I have felt that in being a woman in this world, I have not faced the typical barriers that I know that so many women still face. Mm. And I don't think that's down to me necessarily navigating that. Mm. I think I've always just seen myself and my identity as being a woman as the most positive thing, the most, you know, such an area where I can draw so much strength and confidence from. And I think as well, it's it's been particularly the sort of field, I guess, in my professional life that I've gone into where when I first finished studying and that kind of thing, I was working in the not-for-profit sector on freshwater restoration projects and primarily working with farmers, you know, in, the, in an agricultural space, in a really male-dominated space. And I think... Because I was there talking about, you know, the wonders of New Zealand's native fish and how amazing they are and, and what they can do on their own properties to improve the habitat of those fish. And I think the more that I found my voice and found myself being able to speak to, you know, the issues of, I think, intergenerational justice and the rights particularly of current and future generations to you know, a healthy environment and a relatively stable climate mm. that I've just felt more and more, like, empowered mm. in being a woman and, and saying that message and feel like I'm really representing so many others who have that view. And and not even... I don't even want to call it a view. Um, it's more like an acknowledgement of what is necessary for us as people in this world to actually start um, I really can't call it anything else but other than healing Mm. and restoring ourselves and actually finding a way to be not sustainable in the buzzword but like truly sustainable in the way we live our lives and interact with nature Mm. I feel like my responsibility Mm. being you know, the person who I am, not in an ego sense, but literally a factual sense. I am me in this body Mm. and I have had this privilege Mm. and I feel more like an obligation, not in terms of a burden, but more like um, 
yeah, just a responsibility to speak to these issues mm. and yeah, I don't know. It makes how complete really sense. Describe it. it makes complete sense. It's different for me to hear that. <laughs> it's different because also recognizing our generational differences. So I'm 47 and you're... I'm 33. 33. And I saw women in leadership having to be very, very strong, very, very bold, fighting big fights, getting... um, Women still get a lot of, uh, you know, trolls and social media and stuff like that. Yeah. But kind of a more traditionally masculine model of providing leadership and having a voice. Yeah. And your my what I think I'm hearing you saying is a very different model of having a voice. Mm. And I and I'm thinking, and how have you gone forward and put yourself in a what I think a you can as a traditional mm. model, very traditional model. Mm. But you're not doing it as an individual. You're doing it as a collective voice. Well, yeah, I, I, I feel like that's where I'm coming from because I think a lot with these kind of discussions, you know, if you hear someone talking about the importance of the environment, for example, I think a lot, the, the previous frame or, or probably the current frame that we have is that is a left, you know, politically left environmental um agenda or, or you know it, it's sort of like that's a political framework and, and I feel like I'm really coming from the place where I'm like no 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 the overwhelming evidence and, and I you know I really stress that as a human being I totally acknowledge the importance of science and that that's a way that we humans are learning about our environment and, and figuring out you know what can we do better? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And we can learn so much from that. And I think the environment, we just need to get away from the thinking that it is a left political issue. The environment is, you know, what sustains all of us. And no matter where you are on the political spectrum, um, again, the weight of evidence now is saying to us we need to recognise that and actually we don't have much time to recognise that in Mm. terms of the urgency of the climate issues in particular, which are so intrinsically linked to water, they're so intrinsically linked to soil, to our capacity to grow food. We can't underestimate the urgency of the situation we currently face. Mm. And even if we we're able to acknowledge that and embrace that and decide as a society that we're going to move in the right direction, you know, even then we wouldn't necessarily um, solve all our issues. We know that, you know, the future generations are locked in to a certain amount of uh, climate global warming Mm. and all the associated environmental disruption with that. There's often a idea that, oh, someone someday should do something about that. Yes. But actually... That someday <laughs> is now. Yes. Is now. And, and it's never going to be yeah. cheaper how- or easier or we're never going to have the luxury mm. of having time to sit back and consider these things when we're actually dealing with so much disruption. Mm. 
and I got that sense of urgency when I read uh, Greta Thunberg's essays um, and or speeches that she's put into a booklet. Yeah. And to sum it up, the message is the house is on fire. Yeah. And it's not someday later someone. And in my trying to get my head around it, uh, because I guess I've sort of been, there's so many global issues. This is just one of the global issues as opposed to the global issue. Mm. Um, I was very close to my maternal grandparents and they lived through World War II. And from their stories, even though I've had no experience of war whatsoever, I can just see it like there's a war approaching, like like in the kind of mindset there yeah. used to be, there was leading up to that. Totally. Um, that's how I kind of trying to get my head around that yeah. that something's gonna something's coming soon and urgent that will affect every aspect of life. Yes. Not just and as you were saying to me earlier, we've tended to be siloed in our thinking mm. of the economy or women's issues or Māori issues or the environment. Yeah. As opposed to it's all well, and that's the thing about climate change, okay? So it is this massive challenge for the world in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But what it also does for us as a global community is actually brings us together with one common challenge. And it it really blurs the lines between what are environmental and what are actually very moral issues when we're saying, okay, we know in New Zealand that climate change now means that our emissions here would contribute to the absolute loss of livelihood, culture, you know, way of being, particularly of our Pacific neighbours, but people around the world that we are connected to and our actions... Mm will damage them. Hmm. So what is our responsibility in that space? Are we still happy to say this is an environmental issue on a global scale? We're a small player. We can't make a difference. It doesn't matter. Or do we say, actually, we're part of this world. We have often led by example. And, you know, this is where the suffrage Mm. movement comes in. The nuclear-free movement. It's Mm. we the um, anti-apartheid movement. We have led by example before. Mm. We can do it again. And actually, when we go back to the privilege of our country, Mm. that is our responsibility. Mm. Mm. And we need to do more than just, you know, question whether we should take up that responsibility. We need to be, like, embracing it and owning it. And, you know, we love to think of ourselves as Kiwis as innovators and... And let's let's do that. Mm. You know, the, the opportunities mm. are there, and and that's why, you know, as much as 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 crippling as the burden of the climate issues are, and you know, how do we make? How does one person make a difference? How does a group of people make a difference? It's like, well, we can actually see this as the the one opportunity mm. that will actually unite the world in. You know, and it sounds, ter- I hate saying it, but in creating a better world. Mm. It's the opportunity. Mm. Nothing else can really provide that. Mm. I, I, I don't know. I can't think of 
anything else that can provide that because war, you know, say a global war, that's just so mm. violent and damaging. Mm. Whereas the the response to this climate catastrophe can be restorative and mm. compassionate mm. and inclusive. Mm. I mean, I, I often say to really, to really give future generations a, a chance at a relatively st- stable climate, we need everyone, everywhere, doing everything within their sphere of influence. And and that can involve individual actions. Mm. You know, if if someone is like, well, I mean, it must involve individual mm. actions, but if someone feels like their sphere is themselves, you mm. know, and that it is in changing their consumption and waste habits or, um, you know, talking to the people they know about mm. these issues, then mm. that's great. Mm. Like, play that part. Do what you can in your own sphere. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and and often, you know, there's... And, but don't feel alone and stuck and alone yeah. because there are also groups and yes. communities Absolutely. and ways to get involved. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, again, the, the climate space is everything from... You know, what are the resilience of our food networks? Mm. How do we have local economies Mm. where if, you know, we are facing Mm. astronomical climate challenges, we can make sure that we have a diversity of produce, fresh food, you know, clean water. It's those basics that we're still not getting right and not thinking about. And and we know in terms of where the global economy is at and, and particularly people's awareness about food and where it comes from and that kind of thing. It just so happens that if we really, as particularly as a region here in Canterbury, started embracing those local economies instead of like sort of large-scale, low-commodity export of essentially milk powder, mm. um, if we start embracing those more diversity in the way that we grow things in our region that just benefits us mm. and there is a, a pathway of economic prosperity there that isn't the short-term economics that we're so used to believing that we're talking, you know, when we're saying the economy, we believe we're talking about the economy. We're talking about really short-term yeah. economies there. So looking at much bigger. Yeah. Absolutely. There are elections coming up. Can you just say... Yes. It's uh, 12th of October... Yeah, so local government elections, voting papers are posted out September 20th. For Environment Canterbury, this is the first return to full democracy. The last time there was a full democratic election was 2007. So there is real opportunity for vote an environmentally minded council. So please vote. We've got abysmal turnout rates in voting. And, and we want to turn that round this Let's turn around. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks, Lars. Thanks so much, Rachel.